Dear friends of Jesus Christ, historian Larry Hurtado spent most of his career studying the growth of the early church. He was fascinated by the movement and he wanted to know how it happened that Christianity became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire with, within just a few centuries of its birth. Why did people want to join this small, persecuted community, the community of Jesus? Why did it grow so fast? Part of the story, argues Hurtado, is that the Christian movement had some attractive offers that it held out, that, that people were really drawn to. It offered people a direct connection with God, which was unique. It also offered people a clear vision of the afterlife and assurance of participation in afterlife, that afterlife. That too was attractive. But there was more to the growth of the church than these offers. People were drawn to the church, argues Hurtado, because the church was different. It was a unique social project, and it grabbed people's attention. Christians lived differently in the world. People noticed. People took note. What's going on over there in that community? In Hurtado's view, five qualities made the church unique. Firstly, the community of Jesus was multi-ethnic and multi-class. Most other religions divided along these lines, but not the church. Only in the church would you find a slave and a free person eating at the same table. Only in the church would you find Jew and Gentile, male and female. What mattered to those in the church was not one's heritage or standing in society, but one's identity in Christ. This was different. Second, the church was committed to peacemaking, reconciliation, and nonviolence. Christians did not respond to abuse with retaliation. Rather, they chose to endure suffering like their suffering Savior. They forgave each other and they forgave those who were persecuting them. And in a shame and honor culture in which revenge was the norm, this was a different way to live. People took note. Third, the early church and the Christians were known for their generosity to the poor and their commitment to charity. They took care of their own, the widows and orphans in their own church, and they took care of the poor that surrounded them in their community, irregardless of their religion. In fact, when the plagues and diseases hit the big cities in the first century, the Christians did not flee the city with everyone else. They stayed put, and their living rooms became the first hospitals. This was different, a different way to live. Fourthly, and connected to the last point, the early church was committed to promoting the sanctity of life. Abortion wasn't a widespread option in the ancient world, so instead of aborting unwanted babies, it was common for people to simply leave their children, their infants, outside to die. Slave traders would pick up the ones that survived, sex traffickers too. But the Christian church didn't participate in this practice. In fact, it was their practice to scoop up these unwanted children and adopt them into their families. And fifth and finally, the early Christians founded a sexual counterculture. In the Roman world, men of status were free to have sex with whomever they wanted. Promiscuity was expected. But the church taught that sex was meant for marriage and that men were to give up their lives for their wives 
as Christ gave up his life for the church. Paul says, our bodies are not our own, but they belong to the Lord. They belong to each other. This was a radical, radical idea. So according to Hurtado, these, these five qualities made the church stand out. It set them apart. Many people were offended by this. There are aspects of this that turned them right off, and it's part of why the church was hated. But others were attracted to the church's unique way of life, and eventually more were attracted to it than were repelled. And within just a few centuries, the small persecuted subculture succeeded in transforming the larger culture. And in a way, our culture today is still living on the fumes of this movement that took place in the first three centuries. I was thinking about Hurtado's argument today as I prepared for this sermon, for I think it can help us make sense of the metaphor that Paul gives us in this passage. His desire, his prayer for the Philippian church is that they would shine like stars in a dark world, that they'd hold out the word of life in a depraved generation. This image has its origin in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Near the end of that book, Daniel has a vision of the end times. That he says it's going to be a day of great distress, unlike anything we've ever seen. But then he says this, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Who are the wise ones in Daniel's visions, vision? They are the ones who showcase God's ways in God's world. And they do so in such a way that others are attracted to it and come into this righteous community. Jesus meant something similar when he called his disciples the light of the world. You are a people set apart, he said to them. You're set apart to illuminate the ways of God in the world. Light is different from darkness, but it impacts the darkness. If you light a candle in a dark room, you see the light that's distinct from the darkness and how it impacts the world around. This is what the disciples, this is what the early church, this is the picture that uh, Jesus says, you are this, you are like this in the world. And that's Paul's desire for the church in Philippi, that they would be both distinct from the world and make an impact on the world, that they would shine like stars as they held out the word of life. How does a community shine, shine like the stars? Well, it starts with having the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Not looking to one's own interests, but to the interests of others. Brittany preached on that last week. And those who follow Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, they are the ones that shine. Paul praises the church in Philippi for the ways that they have already followed Jesus and lived in obedience to him and are so already a a life-giving, light-filled community. They followed Jesus when Paul was with them in person, and now they follow Jesus even more so in Paul's absence. This gives Pastor Paul joy. 
And so, does, and so instead of calling the people to repentance and renewal, he simply encourages them to continue on this trajectory, continue going this direction. He says this, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it's important to understand what Paul is actually saying here. He's not telling the Philippians that their entrance into the kingdom of God, their salvation, is based on their ability to perform. He's not saying, work on your salvation, but work out your salvation. The scriptures are clear on this point from start to finish. Only God can change the human heart and reorient it towards himself. Entrance into Christ's kingdom is not something that can be achieved. It can only be received. And yet the scriptures are also clear that we aren't simply pawns in God's project, but participants in God's plan. And it's our call to work out together the salvation that we've graciously been given in Christ. Here Paul is simply encouraging the church to strive towards greater degrees of obedience to Christ. You're on the right track, he's saying. Now continue to work this out. Continue to follow Christ on the long road of obedience. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I wonder why Paul adds that little fear and trembling bit. As if Jesus' followers need to be a bit afraid as we strive towards greater obedience to Christ. Are there consequences for uh, not living up to Christ's standards? Are there consequences for not making progress in the faith that ought to make us tremble? The simple point Paul is making here, I think, is that our striving this direction is to be taken uh, as a serious matter, something we shouldn't be flippant about. Jesus is not an anything-goes sort of leader. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira. They came to the apostles with a generous gift in the first few days, the first few uh, months of the church's existence in Jerusalem. They had sold some property. They said they were giving it all, but really they were only giving a part and they were keeping some for themselves, but they were trying to keep that little bit of information secret. And both of them were struck dead by God on the spot. And then it says in Acts that a great fear seized the whole community. Sometimes I fear that us modern Christians have lost some of this appropriate fear and trembling in our lives as disciples before Christ. We're quick to remind each other of God's love, but we forget the reality that the lamb who sits on the throne is also the lion of Judah, and he won't tolerate lies or manipulation in his church. I remember being a kid in Mr. Benjamin's grade five class. Mr. Benjamin's was very gracious and fair, but he was not to be messed with or tested. And everyone in the school knew that. Everyone. So whenever we heard his footsteps walking down the hall as he was coming back to class, we'd all be like, shh, Mr. Benjamin's is coming. Right? Quiet, quiet down. We don't want to test him. And I think maybe that's an appropriate way to think about a relationship with Jesus. He's good. 
He can be counted on to forgive, to offer grace, but he's not to be tested or messed with. There are not, not standards. I'm looking for the right way of saying this, but he's the authority among us. I'm not the boss of this church. You're not the boss of this church. The person who's been here the longest or who gives the most, they're not the boss in this church. Jesus is Lord of the church. We need to keep that perspective. And as we work out our salvation, as we grow together into the kind of people that he's making us to be, we need to remember that's serious. That's an important call, not something to be flippant about. And as we do this, as we strive this direction, we need also to remember what Paul says next. And what he says next is that this working out our salvation business isn't done in isolation from God, but with, with God as God works in us. For it is God who works in you, says Paul, to will and to act according to his good purpose. So it's God that changes hearts, and it's God who makes possible, it's God who makes possible uh, for people to be able to will what is good and, and to want to leave behind the sin that so easily entangles. And as we work out our salvation, we have to imagine he's with us all the way. He's cheering us on. He's energizing and empowering us. Like the, like the wind fills the sails of a boat and propels the boat forward, so God's Spirit is at our back, encouraging us towards maturity in Christ which is his good purpose. We don't do this work in isolation. God is cheering us on as we, as we seek to follow him in his son. And next, next, Paul lays out one specific way that the church can work out her salvation and so shine like stars in the dark world. And I want to focus on this, this verse for a while. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Everything. In context, I think it's clear that the everything Paul is talking about here has to do with the Philippian church working out their salvation as a community. The everything is all that pertains to their life with God and one another. Put off the old self without complaining or arguing. Forgive your neighbor without complaining or arguing. Work out your salvation as a faithful and positive disciple of Jesus Christ without complaining or arguing. The Greek word translated complain is gagusman. I love that word. It means to murmur. Murmur. I also think that's a great English word. To murmur is to quietly stew, to grumble under your breath, to scoff at a situation or decision, to roll your eyes in disapproval. The Old Testament Israelites provide a good example of the deadly impact that murmuring has on one's relationship with God and in community. As soon as they got out of Egypt, they began to murmur, to grumble. 
They grumbled about the food. They got pretty tired of manna pretty quick, and they wanted some meat, so they complained. They complained about the lack of water. After a while, they said, we wish we were back in Egypt. We wish we were enslaved again. At least we had the Nile River flowing by, and we could have water whenever we wanted it. And when they finally arrived at the doorsteps of the Promised Land, they complained about how strong the Canaanites looked. Multiple times, Moses had to intercede on behalf of the people. Their lack of gratitude and trust made God furious. Murmuring, grumbling. I can tell you as a parent to young children that it's the hardest for me to be patient when there's a lot of grumbling happening at the dinner table. Say I just worked really hard to put this meal in front of them. And the first thing they say when they sit down at the table is like, oh, like this smells so gross. Like, I hate this. And like on and on it goes. I'm just like, I'm going to lose it, right? I bought the expensive Parmesan for this. (laughs) Murmuring. It's so unseemly and unbecoming. I mean, does any of you have uh, someone you, uh, you know, we need people to look up to in life on this road and to say, I want to be like that when I'm older. If for, any, if for any of you, is that person, is that someone who grumbles and complains a lot? Probably not. We don't want to become like that. It's unseemly. It's immature in a way, too. And it's unhealthy for us personally and collectively. I mean, what happens to an army when the troops begin to complain and argue? Or what happens to a company culture when grumbling and complaining and arguing become the norm? Or what happens to the witness and life of the church when we begin to complain and argue about the things that Jesus has for us? In the Old Testament, the Israelites grumbled to Moses about God, but there's no indication in Paul's letter to the Philippians uh, that this is the problem in the church. Rather, it's more likely that they are struggling with some sort of internal communal issue. These people are grumbling about each other. They're bickering among themselves. And we don't know exactly what the issue is, and Paul doesn't have to lay it out because everyone in the church knows what the issue is. We know that two prominent women in the congregation were at odds with each other, and Paul encourages them in chapter 4 to work out their differences and to get along in the Lord. Maybe the complaining and the arguing had something to do with that, and people were starting to take sides. Whatever the case, it's not hard to imagine a congregation catching a little case of the grumblies. It happens from time to time. My dad used to have coffee with a group of elderly men down at Tim Hortons. These men were a generation older than him, former pillars of the church, They used to serve as elders and deacons all throughout their adult years. But now that they were into their 80s, they couldn't or didn't want to serve in that capacity anymore. And besides, they didn't care much for the new pastor and the direction that he was taking the church. Pretty soon, their mild discontent began to snowball, and they started to murmur. Every week, they seemed to find more ammunition to fuel their discontent. The murmuring compounded. Word got out of this discontent. 
people began to weigh in and take sides on what was happening. More murmuring, more quiet conversations in the parking lot after meetings and after church. These men probably had a few legitimate concerns, and if they had voiced them through the right channels, maybe some good could have come out of the situation, or at least some understanding could have been built. But that's not the way the situation unfolded. This kind of thing happens everywhere. Families, happens in institutions, communities, big businesses, happens in neighborhoods, all over the place. But it's especially detrimental to the life and witness of the community of Jesus and to our growth and maturity. I mean, how do you feel after an hour of complaining? Do you feel calm, ready to work out your problems with others with grace and charity? Not usually. Grumbling has a way to stir us up. It provokes more anger in us. It makes it all the more difficult to bear with one another in love. And think about the regulars at Tim Hortons that overheard these, overheard these conversations week after week after week. These men had in their possession the very words of life. They could have been having a Bible study week after week after week, praying for one another, modeling something different in the world. But instead of shining like stars, in that time, they made the darkness a little darker. We need to remember that the church is an alternative society, that God has called us out of darkness and into his light. And there he schools us and disciples us in his ways. And I'm thinking, and I think you'd agree with me on this, I'm thinking that we would be an attractive community and that we would really shine and be noticed by the world if we were known for engaging God and each other without complaining or arguing. The world does not do conflict well. We shun and divide, shun and divide. We drop cruel comments on social media. We don't listen. Some of your workplaces, I'm sure, are just crippled and torn apart by grumbling and arguing. Wouldn't we shine if we chose a different way? If we chose to embrace reality as it came to us, chose to respond with joy and thankfulness to what God has given us instead of nitpicking about things that don't matter as much. This doesn't mean avoiding hard conversations in community, of course. What it means is relentlessly working through them in a Christ-like way. In high school, Brittany had a, a friend that liked to gossip. In fact, Brittany and this friend liked to gossip together. And now I'm gossiping. Oh, wait, she's out there, so <laughs> she, she can hear. But there was a little friend group of gossipers. This was just part of the culture of their life together. Now, gossiping is a little different than murmuring, but, you know, they're relatives. They're in the same family, the same destructive family. To gossip is not to complain about someone else, but it's to talk about someone else behind their back, and it's, it's, uh, it's destructive. 
At a certain point, Brittany's friend became convicted that what she was doing was wrong. High school student, you know, I love it. When they had this moment, this is wrong. I should not be doing this. And so she went through a process of repentance. And after the change took place in her, she let her friends know that she was just not going to do that anymore. And so in the future, whenever conversation shifted in a gossipy direction, this friend would simply leave the conversation. She wouldn't make a big deal of it. She didn't force others to stop. She just wouldn't play the game anymore. That part of her was dead. And she was doing her darnest to work out her salvation, God helping her. Her change in behavior, reported Brittany, had a huge impact on the entire culture of the class. All of a sudden, people became self-conscious about their gossiping habits. Her refusal to participate shined a light on how big that practice was in their friend group. And once the light shone upon it, the practice began to die. Murmuring begins with one, and it spreads out from there. But the refusal to murmur begins with one, too. And like a candle lit in a dark room, the light will impact the darkness. In 2011, Harold Heemstra wrote a delightful article in the Banner, our denomination's magazine. In the 70s, Harold was a pastor in a town in Iowa. The church he served was, was growing, and the building that they had was getting old and it was too small. So the council proposed that the church build a bigger, new building to replace their aging, small building. Council approved the project, but the project still needed to go to the congregation before it could get off the ground. The congregation needed to have their say. Nothing stirs up murmuring in a congregation like a big building project. So at the next congregational meeting, the proposed building project was on the agenda. One man, known for his opposition to the project, stood up and shared his two cents. He went on and on. He passionately laid out his case why this was a misuse of resources and a bad idea for the church. At a certain point, this man's wife reached up and gave her husband's coattails two tugs. A few, minute, a few seconds later, the man sat down, his speech done. The discussion continued till late into the night, and in the end, the motion passed. 85% agreed that it was time to build a new building. The next morning, the man who opposed the building project went out for a walk, and on his walk, he stopped by his local church. He walked into the office. He pulled out his checkbook and wrote a big check earmarked for the new building fund. Why did he do it? Harold Heemstra says he did it because he was a churchman dedicated to the Lord and to his brothers and sisters in the faith. He could have stewed. He could have stirred up the 15% who, like him, didn't want a building project but that would have hurt the church's witness. 
and it would not have helped the community work out their salvation. Instead, he chose to engage the situation armed with the mind of Christ who did not consider his own interests but the interests of others. Do everything without complaining or arguing, says Paul, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. As I was thinking about who models the opposite of grumbling and complaining, I was reminded of Jesus Christ. Was there any, ever a time in his tumultuous life on earth when he grumbled and complained about his lot? I don't think so. He didn't grumble or complain as he picked up his cross. He didn't scoff at his disciples when they deserted him in his hour of need. He didn't resent the human race for needing a savior. Rather, in obedience to his Father in heaven and out of love for his neighbor, he ran the race set before him and he did so with joy. Together, let's follow the example of the one who gladly bore the cross so that we could shine like stars with him in the heavens. Amen.